Psalm 90. It is the oldest psalm uh, written by Moses and has some very interesting things to say. And we're going to just look briefly at it. And then we're going to do a, begin at least a spiritual audit this morning. A spiritual audit. So would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be challenged as we enter the new year. So many times, Lord, this is a time when we look back at our lives in the previous year and where we're at, where we thought we'd be at. Uh, and we think about the coming year and the goals that we'd like to have. Not resolutions, Lord, but goals, especially in the spiritual realm, to grow closely to you, to grow more like our Savior and his character, our Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us to change and become all that you want us to be. Help us to recognize, Lord, as we enter this new year, how brief our time here on earth is and how precious it is that we use that time to honor you. Now, God, please guide us in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. The writer Vance Havner said this, New Year's Day has a bad reputation because it is the birthday of so many resolutions that die in infancy. And I think that's a, that's a good statement. So we're not, we're not talking about resolutions this morning. I don't like the concept of New Year's resolutions. I do like the concept of looking at my life, trying to see where I have been in the last year or the last couple of years, to see where I'm going, to see where it is that God would have me to go. And so I like that idea. I like the idea of looking at my life, looking at goals. Uh, kind of expressed uh, by Tony Dungy uh, in his book, The One Year Uncommon Life Daily Challenge. I had used that book a couple of years ago in my daily devotions and hadn't used it for a while, and I thought I'm going to go back to it this year. I don't know about you, but I like to, uh, along with my Bible reading every day, I like to read some uh, devotional writers uh, who give me a great perspective on the Word of God and, uh, and challenge my life and, and a perspective on my life. And so I'm going back to using the one-year Uncommon Challenge, uh, Uncommon Life Daily Challenge this year. Tony Dungy said this, self-control, discipline, getting in shape, a new commitment to stick to the plan. How many times have you written down these goals or thought about them just before January 1st? In a CNN report on, the new, on New Year's resolutions, it wasn't surprising to learn that losing weight is the most common goal people set. In fact, I would guess that year after year that rarely changes. It will always be up there. It's what fitness centers around the country gear up for, an influx of new customers and increased revenue in January more than any other time of the year. And then we come to our senses around February. As followers of Christ, we should maintain self-control and discipline, especially when it comes to taking care of our bodies, getting in shape and making a commitment to stay that way. 
honors God. But that mindset is important not only for our physical bodies, but also for the training we do and the commitment we make to ourselves and to God. We commit to learn more about him and about how we can become better disciples. It's not a passive endeavor. It takes resolve and repetition, consistently working at it for maximum results. And results will happen as we grow closer to him. Real success in achieving goals, whether they were set on January 1st or not, comes when we know we can't do it by ourselves and look to the Lord for strength. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not the person to talk to you about physical health. So I'm not going to talk about that. There are other people who are better uh, equipped to do that, such as my wife. Uh, there are others who could talk about that. But I am going to talk about spiritual health. I know a little bit about spiritual health. I have had it. I have not had it at different points in my life. And so uh, we're going to talk about spiritual health and how to look at our lives Questions to ask ourselves uh, to help us to grow. Dungey went on to say, where do you need improvement? More physical training for your body, taking care of the temple he gave you, or getting to know him better, spending time in his word and with him in prayer? I'd recommend both on a regular basis. In the New Men's Devotional Bible, they ask some similar questions that we need to consider. What do you do to stay in shape? Hit the gym every morning, strap on the Nikes and run a few miles, bike to work? Interestingly, we live in a world that encourages men, and I think women as well, to make their bodies strong but neglects their spirits. As a result, we too often work to build up our biceps but completely ignore our souls. We typically think of masculine strength as physical, but what if true strength comes from inside, from your soul and its connections to God? When was the last time you worked out to strengthen that part of your being? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is how to strengthen that part of our being, that uh, immaterial part of us that communicates with God that grows in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we work on that part of us? And how do we know what we need to work on? So that's what we're going to look at this morning at this spiritual audit. Psalm 90, as I said, is the oldest of the Psalms written by Moses. As Warren Wiersbe says it, the theme of Psalm 90 is in spite of the burdens of life and the brevity of life, life is worth living when you trust the Lord. If you would follow as I read Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening it is dry and withered. Now, as I read the rest of this, I want you to consider uh, what the, the background is to Psalm 90. Written by Moses, we know that it's the oldest psalm, but the background to Psalm 90 
many believe is the wilderness wanderings when God, because of the disobedience of the Israelites, the disobedience in going into the land, God said, then none of you who are 40 or above will enter the promised land. What that meant was that day after day after day after day, the one organizing factor of the Israelite camp was burying people. You can see why Moses would focus on the brevity of life, why he would focus on how brief life is, because that was the organizing feature of this time in the life of the Israelites for that whole generation would have to die out because they had disobeyed God and re rejected going into the promised land. Well, as we read on, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright. You see what Moses is saying in light of our sin, in light of the death that comes because of our sin, in light of the trials and the sorrows and the difficulties of life that come because of our sin, we, because that is true, we need to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We, met, we have to realize that life is brief. We're only given so much time and we must use that time to grow in our faith. We must use that time to grow in our obedience to God. We must use that time uh, day after day to walk in God's will and walk in God's way. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad for all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You see, though they were having an illustration in the Israelite camp through the 40 years of wandering, though they had that illustration of death, day after day after day, Moses was saying, we still have time to redeem the days. We still have time, brief as it may be, to redeem the days. So what Moses is saying is we have to come to grips with our mortality. In light of life's brevity, we should not take our days for granted. We should number our days. That means to make good use of the days that God gives us. That's what it means to number our days, to make good use of the days that God gives us. We must apply our hearts to living wisely. 
In the Bible, the idea of living wisely, the idea of wisdom is to skillfully be able to apply the word of God to life situations. To skillfully be able to apply the word of God to life's situations. In light of God's, excuse me, in light of life's brevity, we should not take our days for granted. In light of God's compassion, we can have real meaning in our lives. We can have joy in place of sorrow. We can have success instead of failure. Well, let me give you a brief outline of Psalm 90. Verses 1 to 6 is a comparison between the eternality of God and the frailty of humankind. Verses 1 to 6 is a comparison between the eternality of God and the frailty of humans. Verses 7 and 8 looks at the problem of sin, which was the cause of the brevity of life. You see, from the very beginning, from the time in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve turned their backs upon God and, and brought sin upon into their lives and sin into the world, that brought what? It brought death. Sin brings death in its various ways. And so, uh, in, in light of that, we have to, uh, the problem of sin leads to the brevity of life. And verses 9 through 12, Moses talks about how brief life is, and because it's brief, what we should be doing about it. Because it's brief, how we should organize our lives. And then finally, in verses 13 to 17, Moses talks about the need for grace. Once again, Warren Wiersbe says, In the camp of Israel, a 20-year-old would not live beyond 60, and the older people would never make it to 80. It was a funeral march for 40 long years. That's the background to what Moses is saying here. The background to his challenge to us that though life is brief, we should live it wisely. Though life is brief, we should live every day to carry out the word of God in our lives, to live wisely. Sin has marred life, but it can still have meaning and it can still have purpose and it can still have joy. There's, Psalm 90 isn't the only one that speaks of the brevity of life. Psalm chapter 39, verses 4 and 5, we read this. This is the NLT translation. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire life is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. That's David's take on the brevity of life. Many of you and, uh, are familiar with James and James chapter 4, where James in chapter 4 and verse 14 gives us his take on the brevity of life, where James says this, What is your life but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? What is your life? What is my life but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Well, what I'd like to do is ask, what can we do in our lives? How can we live our lives in such a way 
that we are making the best use of each day, that we are making the best use of our time. And to do that, I'd like to, I'd like to um, talk about a spiritual audit. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me, uh, this comes from an article by Fred Smith, who's, uh, who, who was a Dallas businessman. Uh, he's now in the Lord's presence. He passed away a few years ago. But he used to write regularly for Leadership Journal. And he had some great practical advice for believers. And so he wrote an article that I read years ago entitled Conducting a Spiritual Audit, 12 Questions to Keep Your Personal Accounts in Order. 12 Questions to Keep Your Personal Accounts in Order. And that's what I'd like to look at today. And whatever we don't finish today, we'll look at next week. What are these 12 questions? He explains this. When I was teaching an adult Sunday school class, one member, the CEO of a major firm, asked me to lunch. He started the conversation by saying, I have a CPA to keep me liquid, a lawyer to keep me legal, and a doctor to keep me healthy, but I have no one to help assess my spiritual condition. Can you give me a spiritual audit? What a great idea, right? Can you give me a spiritual audit? How can I assess my spiritual condition? How can I assess where, how far I've come? How can I assess how far I need to go? And so Smith says this, I had never thought about such a thing. I thrashed around trying to be helpful, but felt completely lost in doing what he wanted. This led me to think about a spiritual audit, first for myself and then possibly for others. In the two or three years since, I have accumulated 12 questions I ask myself. I hope you will be encouraged to develop your own audit if you feel it helpful. So if you want to develop your own audit, have at it. Enjoy. I'd love to see it. If not, let me suggest this, these 12 questions. The first is this. Am I content with who I am becoming? Am I content with who I am becoming? Smith says this, we must be sure that our profession, that means our career, our job, not our profession of faith, but our career, our job, we must be sure that our profession does not consume our person. How often we are identified by what we do instead of by our character. How often we are identified by what our job is, what our career is, by what we do, rather than by our character. And what Smith is saying is the question that we should ask ourselves is, I, am I content with who, am I, who I am becoming? In other words, not how far I'm advancing in my job, not how far I'm advancing in life. Am I content with the person I am? Am I content with the person I'm becoming and the person that I will be on if I stay on the track I'm on now? Am I content with that? Am I content with that? We so often measure our lives in what we do or what we have, but these are not adequate measures. These are not adequate measures. The right measure is what we are. What we are. We must be sure that our profession does not consume our person. Dr. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, who also happens to be in heaven, and I imagine there's some interesting conversations between Smith, 
Fred Smith and Dr. Hendricks. But uh, Dr. Hendricks said this about a businessman in the Dallas area that he knew. And he said he spent his whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find that it was parked on the wrong building. And that can happen to us. That can happen to us. We can pursue success. We can pursue our career. We can pursue the things we do and forget about who we are, what we are. We must be sure that our career, our job, does not consume our person. Does not consume our person. Smith also says, also as we grow older, we must move from power to wisdom. He said, when we're younger, we seek power. But when we're older, we should not be seeking power. We should be seeking wisdom. We should be seeking to live wisely. And so he says, I ask myself, am I moving from power and becoming a person of wisdom? So the first question to ask ourselves in the spiritual audit is this. Am I content with who I'm becoming? Am I content with who I'm becoming? The second question to ask ourselves in the spiritual audit is this. Am I becoming less religious and more spiritual? Am I becoming less religious and more spiritual? He says this, the Pharisees were religious. Christ is spiritual. Much tradition is religious while relation in Christ is spiritual. Remember, Jesus had the harshest things to say about what kind of people? Religious people. Jesus had the harshest things to say about religious people. His harshest criticism was aimed at religious people. Matthew chapter 23, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 23, we get a, a, a taste of that as Jesus speaks to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. And we read this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That is, they were the teachers of the day. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Those were little boxes they put on their forehead uh, that had uh, four scripture in them. Uh, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have only one master and you are all brothers and do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven nor are you to be called teacher for you have one teacher the Christ, the greatest among you will be your servant, 
For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then Jesus pronounces seven woes upon the religious leaders of the day. Seven woes upon the religious leaders of the day. We don't have time to look at those, but for your own study, look at the seven woes that Jesus pronounced upon religious people. Jesus pronounced upon religious people. Remember, Jesus was called a friend of what person? What kind of person? Sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. So the question for us is, are we becoming less religious and more spiritual in our lives? The third question that we need to ask ourselves in the spiritual audit is this. Does my family recognize the authenticity of my spirituality? You know, that's the place where we're going to be known for either being spiritual or not. The true state of our spirituality, the true state of our Christianity will be seen in our homes, will be seen in our marriages. That's where the true state of our spirituality. We can fool people outside our home. We can fool people at church. But we can't fool our spouse and we can't fool our children. They know the real us. They know what we are. They know if we're hypocritical. They know if we're living one way and saying another way. They know the reality of our, the authenticity, as he says, of our spirituality. He says this, they see the whole. I would like to believe and must believe that if I am growing spiritually, my family will recognize it. And then he tells a story. And let let me tell you who these people are in the story he mentions. He mentions Ray Stedman. Ray Stedman uh, is in heaven today. Um, There are a lot of people going to heaven. Did you notice that? Uh, Ray Stedman is in, in heaven today. He and Gene Getz were the two people back in the 70s and 80s that uh, sparked the renewal movement in the church, of which we are a part, ultimately, of moving away from traditionalism and moving to contemporary style of philosophy, of ministry, and of worship. Ray Stedman was one of the two. Uh, Kathy and I had the privilege to meet Ray Stedman. His daughter went to our church in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and uh, he actually came to visit one day. You talk about being nervous <laughs> and uh, thinking, I, I do not possibly want to be, uh, you know, the illustration that he uses of what not to do as a pastor <laughs> and as a preacher. Uh, but uh, he, he came to our church one day. I had him sign one of his books called Body Life, which was one of the books that sparked the, uh, the renewal in the church. Uh, he mentions, he's mentioned in this particular story, Ray Stedman. So is Stephen Olford. Now, I would be willing to, to bet, and I'm not a betting person, but I would be willing to bet that no one here has ever heard of Stephen Olford. Oh, Kathy has. 
you talk about a dynamic speaker. I had the privilege of hearing him back in my Bible college days. Uh, he was one of our mission speaker, and what a dynamic speaker. What a fantastic person who could grab you and pull you in. Well, he's another person here. So the story goes this way. The late Ray Stedman, pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, called together the first advisors for the Council on Biblical Exposition. There were 17 or so well-known ministers and me there as Ray's friend. During lunch, Stephen Olford said, My brothers, I am weary of celebrity religion. I have had my share of honors, but when I die, unless my family can say there is something of God in the man, then I will have failed. What a great statement. And I want to tell you, talk about celebrity religion. He was a celebrity in that sense. But he said, if my family can't say they see something of God in me, I have failed. No matter how many accolades, no matter how many people I have preached to, no matter how many halls or churches I have preached in, doesn't make any difference if my family doesn't see the authenticity of my faith. And um, I dare, I dare, and, and with, with fear and trepidation say this, that I had said many times in the past that it would be very nice for somebody to say, well, Joe was a good pastor. Joe was good in the ministry. But that's not what's important to me. Not that I want to be bad at it. But it's far more important to me. That Kathy and my sons and their wives and our grandchildren can say that I was a faithful man. That is far more important to me. The jury's out. Does my family recognize the authenticity of my spirituality? Number four, number four, and we've talked about this about two months ago. Do I have a flow-through philosophy? Scripture says, and again, Smith is saying this, Smith, Scripture says, He that believeth in me, out of his innermost parts will flow rivers of living water. The freshness is in the flow. The mountain stream is fresh. The Everglades are stagnant. Some of us want to be a lake, not a river. We want to accumulate before we let too much flow through. However, as a Christian, I am to let the blessings flow through me. Certainly that involves more than money. We're not just talking about money there. He says, when Christ praised the widow who gave a mite, was he not praising her sacrifice rather than her gift? Could it be that God appreciates only what we give as a sacrifice? Didn't David say, and I, I, to me this is the, the greatest statement in all of the scripture on giving, didn't David say, I will not give God that which costs me nothing? And yet that's what we often do. But the flow-through philosophy doesn't just have to do with money. It also has to do with leadership. 
Smith said, if I have been blessed with leadership, that blessing should flow out. That blessing should flow out. And then later in the article, he quotes Oswald Chambers, who warns that when we damn the blessings in our lives, we become stagnant, cynical, mean-spirited. We must break the dam and let the blessings flow like a river for the freshness to flow. Do I really have a flow-through way of Christian living? It looks like we'll get one more in this morning. Question number five. Remember question number one, am I content with who, am I, who I am becoming? And number two, am I becoming less religious and more spiritual? Number three, does my family recognize the authenticity of my spirituality? Number four, do I have a flow-through philosophy? And the fifth of 12 questions, do I have a, do I have a quiet center to my life? Do I have a quiet center to my life? And here he mentions two of his favorite writers, Francois Fenelon and Oswald Chambers. He says this, my mentor, and by the way, did you know you could be mentored by people who are 300 years dead? Did you know that? You can be mentored by people who have been dead for 300 years through their writings. Uh, we, we think of, we, we narrow mentoring to a few little actions when mentoring is much broader than that. Every time you read a book, you're being mentored by the author. You're being mentored by the author. And France, Francois Fenelon uh, lived in the, about the 6th or 7th, about the 700s, I believe it was. And... Um, my mentor, Francois Fenelon, who walked with God 300 years ago, said that would be the 16 or 1700s. Okay. Um, peace is what God wants for you to, to, yes, peace is what God wants for you no matter what is happening, no matter what is happening in your life. Oswald Chambers says, In our Lord's life there was none of the press and rush of the tremendous activity that we regard so highly, and the disciple is to be as his master. Smith says there is an important difference between the fast track and the frantic track. It is not God's will for me that I be frantic. When I was heading the operations of a manufacturing corporation, we had an excitable manager who, whenever he got confused, called, called a supervisor's meeting to display it. And after one of these fruitless meetings, I gave him my favorite little verse, when in trouble, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. <laughs> Do I have a quiet center to my life? Smith said this, often I need to hear the command, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Am I taking that time to be still before God or is my life so full of activity, so frantic? Not just busy, but frantic. Or do I have that quiet center? 
Am I content with who I'm becoming? Am I becoming less religious and more spiritual? Does my family recognize the authenticity of my spirituality? Do I have a flow-through philosophy? Do I have a quiet center to my life? That's five of the 12 questions that we ask in this spiritual audit. Let me close with this and then we're going to share together. We're going to have a video and share together in the Lord's Supper. In John Maxwell's book, The Maxwell Daily Reader, he shares this story. My friend Dwight Bain sent me a story of a ham radio operator who overheard an older gentleman giving advice to a younger man. It's a shame you have to be away from home and your family so much, he said. Let me tell you something that has helped me keep a good perspective on my own priorities. You see, one day I sat down and did a little arithmetic. The average person lives about 75 years. Now then, I multiplied 75 times 52 and came up with 3,900, which is the number of, <coughs> of Saturdays that the average person has in his lifetime. It took me until I was 55 years old to think about all this in any detail. So he said, by that time I had lived through over 2,800 Saturdays. I got to thinking that if I lived to be 75, I only had about 1,000 of them left to enjoy. He went on to explain that he bought 1,000 marbles and put them in a clear plastic container in his favorite work area at home. Every Saturday since then, he said, I have taken one marble out and thrown it away. I found that by watching the marbles diminish, I focused more on the really important things in life. There's nothing like watching your time here on earth run out to help you get your priorities straight. I think that's what David was saying. I think that's what Moses was saying. I think that's what James was saying. Then the older gentleman finished. Now let me tell you, one last thought before, before I sign off and take my lovely wife out to breakfast. This morning, I took the very last marble out of the container. I figure if I make it until next Saturday, then I have been given a little extra time. We can't choose whether we will get any more time, but we can choose what we do with that time. Let's pray. Lord, help us, as, as Moses said, and as David said, and as James said, help us to remember how brief life is, and help us to remember that so many times we are on the wrong track. Not, not always, not because we don't want to do your will, sometimes it's because we don't know the track to be on. But by your power, by the power of your spirit, by your word as we soak in it, you will direct us to the right path and help us to so number our days and apply a heart of wisdom to each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.